Nehemiah chapter 6, um, the whole chapter, and then we'll read chapter 1 to 7 of chapter 7. The Bible says, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the, our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers, messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his assistant to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have been appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. and It will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehatabal, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away, or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and some Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and they would have given a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Nodiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the war was completed on the 25th of Elal in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Johanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and, the, and then telling, me, telling him what I said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the war had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, 
the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, make them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been in the first return. This is what I found written there. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to to his own town, in company with Jerubabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Remiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Neham, and Bana. Thank you. Thanks for the, that reading. Um, I was tempted to see how many, how many names he could get out in chapter 7, but I felt uh, that was where we could, we could pause the reading for this evening. Um, in October in 1941, Churchill was invited back to his old school in Harrow, and the Americans had as of yet not entered the war. Hitler had just broken through both in the east. He had got into Poland, Czechoslovakia, and the Low Countries. He had broken through in the west into France. And the pressure inside Churchill's own party was starting to mount that a deal had to be done in order to save their skin. Yet his advice to the boys of Harrow, his old school, back then in 1941, was never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in. And accept in convictions of honor and good sense, never yield to the apparent overwhelming might of the enemy. And with threats on every side, which we began to think about this morning, and threats internally, I wonder if Nehemiah might have found those words quite helpful on a big poster in his project management office. And he certainly put them into practice in chapter 4, chapter 5, and here in chapter 6, which we have read. He remained resolute in the face of opposition, both externally and internally. And this, morning, or this evening, uh, we want to follow on what Gareth has started this morning. As we look at chapter 6, what I want us to see is that, that Nehemiah avoids the distractions and the deceptive traps that his enemies set as he completed this great building project. We come back to the the same characters that we were introduced to this morning. Uh, We have uh, these powerful, politically connected men from the local regions. We've got Sambalad and Tobiah and now Geshem who have set themselves against the work of Nehemiah and the work of God in rebuilding Jerusalem. And to be honest, we're going to come up, against, uh, come up uh, uh, with them. We're going to meet them again in chapter 13. They're going to continually be a thorn in the side of Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem. But here at the start of chapter 6, 
they're back, but their tactics have changed. In chapter 4 this morning, we saw that they came out in sort of open mockery and, and ridicule against the work of Nehemiah and the people. They even threatened to come with military power. But those tactics have been thwarted. And now they're starting to get desperate. The wall is starting to, to get up. I'm sure every day they were wanting to hear the, the progress and they were hearing that it was developing and, and, and the gaps were starting to close. And so they started to try more devious tactics here in chapter 6. And initially, they tried something that was a, a really a distraction. They called Nehemiah and asked him to have a, a sort of conference, a meeting at a neutral loca- location and I think certainly a weaker individual may have thought this is maybe quite intriguing, that uh, they've become less aggressive. They want to meet and have a chat. They want to talk things over civilly. Maybe, maybe I should take some time out of the building project and see if we can come to some sort of agreement. A quick trip down to Ono and back. It's important to open up dialogue with the other side, isn't it? But at the very least, it was a distraction, if not something more dangerous or nefarious. And so Nehemiah sends back that really famous note, isn't it? In verse number three, I sent back a messenger to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should, I, uh, why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? And four times Sambalad sent the message. And the fifth time was an open public letter that was full of false accusations against Nehemiah and the work that they were trying to do. I can imagine Nehemiah's phone just constantly buzzing, emails, voice messages, text messages from Sambalad trying to get his attention. And he kept saying, no, I'm doing a great work. I will not come. I will not stop. I won't be diverted and it may seem initially a bit arrogant, this, this great work. What does Nehemiah think he's up to, that he thinks it's such a great work? But it's not his pride, is it? It's that he had grasped the importance of, of the work that he was, that he was undertaking, that, that he understood that, that this was God's work, this was God's purpose for him. And he remained steadfast, resolute. He would not allow his energy or his time to be diverted or wasted in any other pursuit. And that is a strategy of the enemy, isn't it? That of diversion. And certainly if it was a strategy back then, it is a strategy the enemy can use against us in 2019. Satan might not come to us with the intimidation of the ridicule of chapter 4 or the, 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 the blades and swords of an army that were threatened in chapter 4, but he certainly comes with multiple invitations of distractions, of, of traps that will cause harm and hold back the work of God in our lives. The world has more lures set to trap us, to, to capture us, to divert us than ever before. Think simply of the device in your pocket delivering you endless supplies of information, games, connectivity, constantly demanding your attention. We, on average, check our phones every four and a half minutes. If that's the average, then I obviously do it more often than that. Um, Whether it's a sense of boredom or whether it's a, a task that is difficult or a person that's difficult or an issue that requires spiritual depth, 
We now have these devices in our pockets that are a constant possible distraction where we can instantly escape or procrastinate. We're pulled away. And because of that, we can see it in our, in our culture, isn't it? Our culture's becoming more impulsive, more weak-willed, and that can easily sort of penetrate into our hearts even though we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in the midst of that that we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. It's in the midst of that digital distracted age that we live in that we're called to do a work to build for God. And I I don't want to make rules, but there are endless things that can call for our time, many of them legitimate but we have to ask ourselves the question, like Nehemiah had to when this invitation came, is this going to help us in the work that God has given us to do, the responsibilities that he's given us to carry out, or is this going to distract us? Is this going to take away our energy and our time? What is it that we are saying no to so that we're not distracted from the work that God has for us to do, the important work, the eternal work that he has for each of us as believers. Perhaps I can speak practically about mobile phones as a distraction. As a dad, do we consciously put our phone away when we come home to spend time with our family, to listen to our spouses, to listen to our children? At bedtime, do we put our phone away to bed before we go to bed? so we can spend time perhaps with our spouse, certainly in communion with our God? Or is it the last thing we have at night, the first thing we have in the morning? Nehemiah had to resist the possible distractions and strategies of the enemy. In verse number 10 to 14, after this distraction strategy fails, as they get more and more desperate, they try an all and out and out deception. Uh, a prophet comes onto the scene who appears to be supportive and, and trying to warn Nehemiah of an assassination attack that's coming on his life. Uh, and there seems to obviously be a certain amount of uh, urgency if, if, if he's got information that someone's coming to, to take Nehemiah's life. And, and he starts to pressure Nehemiah uh, to, to try and take action. And, and instantly, almost, Nehemiah starts to smell a rat because he pressurizes Nehemiah to, to, to take hiding in the holy temple. And straight away, Nehemiah, as Danny introduced to us, was in his previous life responsible for security in the Persian courts, could smell a, a plot, a, a false prophet feeding false information, trying to coax him into committing a sin and going into the holy place that was only for the priests. The character of Nehemiah shines through as he responds, should such a man as I run away? And more importantly, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Straight away, he understood that God had not sent him. As he considered his words, he maybe looked like a prophet, he maybe talked like a prophet, he maybe even acted like a prophet, but whenever Nehemiah examined his words, he recognized that God had not sent him. It's been like that from the very beginning, isn't it? 
the enemy's tactics has been deception. Lies and falsehood right from the Garden of Eden through here to Nehemiah surely will be a strategy that comes against us today. Nehemiah knew the truth. He knew that a true prophet would never ask him to go into the temple. And so he was able to detect that this indeed was a false teacher. And Paul tells us that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Jesus said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Don't think he won't try it with you. Deception, falsehood, false teaching. We've got more messaging and sources of information coming to us today than ever before. Blogs, vlogs, podcasts, news articles, Reddit boards, chats over coffee, different ideas. And there's so much stuff that might sound convincing. In fact, it might be 70, 80, 90% true, but it's laced with falsehood, false beliefs that makes it a deception. Faithful Christians should expect a life of blessing. God's love would never allow someone to be accountable and sent to hell. How we act to one another is much more important than what we actually believe. All religions are superficially different but fundamentally the same. It's the same God. All those things, they they may sound at one level like there's some element of truth, but ultimately they're false lies from the devil that lead to death. Subtle deceptions. Remember the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? It was close to being true, but it was a complete lie. Deception doesn't have to be radical. A few tweaks to the truth, and it can come to us dressed up and be severely dangerous. And it's essential, it's essential that we check everything, examine everything against the word of truth. And don't be afraid to ask. If you're not sure, come to the elders of this church and say, I've heard this or I've been sent this. What do you think about this? Is this true? Examine it against the truth of the word of God. As we can come to the end here of chapter 6, we'd be naive not to think that the enemy will not attack us if we want to do a work for God with attacks and strategies of uh, distraction and deception. If we see anything from chapter 4 and 5, and we looked at this morning in chapter 6 here, we must expect struggle. We must expect opposition. We must expect a challenge, distractions, deception, ridicule. Did our Lord and Master not experience exactly the same things? We need to put on the whole armor of God. And as Churchill said, never, never, never give in. Never yield to the apparent overwhelming might of the enemy. Just look at how matter-of-fact Nehemiah puts it in verse number 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month in 52 days. The plan of God was not thwarted. There are many different attacks, many different strategies that the enemy tried, but as matter-of-fact as you like, Nehemiah reports, in 52 days, we had the job done. Don't be distracted. Don't be deceived. 
but let's get plugged in to the plan of God and the building of God. Now in chapter 7, I want us to look a little bit carefully about what it is. What, it, what, what is it that we ought to be doing in building for God? In chapter 7, I want us to see my second point, final point. Nehemiah progresses to focus on building people for worship and renewal before God. I was a little bit, I have to confess, a little bit surprised. Um, my knowledge of Nehemiah was a little bit rusty up until a month or two ago. And, and, and based on my Sunday school experience, I thought the, the big deal was building the walls. But we've come to chapter 6 and that job's done. And I sort of thought that was the climax. So, you know, the book should be finishing. But now we move into chapter 7. We've still got over half the book to go. So, so what were the walls a means to an end for? The walls were built 52 days. Imagine we could get a contractor to do a building job in 52 days. That would be great. Didn't take that long. Now Nehemiah, though, isn't satisfied. He still has a lot more work to do. He still has a long way to go. And he reports in chapter 7, verse number 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. It got the walls up. It got the gates. It got the guard. But the walls didn't make the city. And that certainly isn't what made Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Nehemiah didn't get excited about Jerusalem because of bricks and stones and walls and gates. Nehemiah was excited and passionate about rebuilding Jerusalem because that was the center of the presence and worship of the living God. And that still was a job to do. This isn't just where Nehemiah had ancestors, and it wasn't a sense of nostalgia that he wanted to rebuild Jerusalem for, but this was the city where the one true God had chosen to place his throne in the center of the temple. This was the city where sinful and broken mankind could come and receive atonement, forgiveness, and be welcomed back into God's presence through the temple and the sacrificial system that God had ordained. That's what Nehemiah was passionate about. That's what he really wanted to get to, to rebuild the people of God centered on the worship of God in the temple. And so in chapter 7, he starts this process, this process now, not so much of building the walls, but of rebuilding the people. After the walls were completed, Nehemiah progresses, dare I say it, to the the more significant stage of the building project, building the people for worship and renewal under the word of God. And so in verse number five, as we read, he says, then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I find the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I find written in it, etc., etc. And then we have what initially seems like a fairly, you know, in, in a sort of unexciting list of names. What do, what do we do with this? He goes back, and in chapter 7, he starts to step by step go through the people that they have. And he lists off the names of these exiles. But in particular, notice the classes or the classification of people that he makes. In verse number 
39, the priests. In verse number 43, the Levites. In verse number 46, the temple servants. And in verse number 57, the sons of Solomon's servants. You see, these are all people that are going to be needed and related to the rebuilding and reinstitution of the temple. He separates the priests, the Levites, the sons of Solomon, and the temple servants. And eventually, they are going to have to return back into the city. You see, they've been living in the villages, as Gareth mentioned this morning. They've been living in the surrounding areas because there was no structure. There was no secure space in Jerusalem for them to live. But now the walls are up. They were the means to the end. Now we can bring the people back in. We can bring the workers. We can bring the Levites. We can bring the priests so that we can bring the temple back to life. And I I think it's helpful just as we close to to think about this as as a metaphor. These two different types of works we can sort of see a contrast of, of two different but complementary works that Nehemiah is doing. So on the one hand, we've had the work done on building the walls around the city. But, but now it commences the work of the people coming into the city and the organization of the people and all that will come in chapters 8 onwards. And it's a, helpful, it's a helpful metaphor. Both types of works are important. Both are necessary. And we could say that in building church, in building crescent, we need to be both building walls and building people. What do I mean by that? Well, at one level, at a very basic level, our basic work here as building church is building people. Christ's commission to each of us is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of God's Spirit, to see people outside the church brought in, and those of us inside the church grow into maturation and maturity into the gospel of God. That's what building church is. It's building people. But yet, on the other hand, that that doesn't happen spontaneously without some sort of structure, without some sort of planning, without some sort of funding, support, It requires some sort of building of walls. You see what I mean? The two different types of building. They're complementary but different. And and both of them are, are undertaken by Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an expert administrator, but he was committed to so much more than just building walls. In chapter 8, we'll look at next Sunday morning, he coordinated this massive Bible conference where Ezra came and taught the word of the Lord like it had never happened in that generation before. He organized the Levites to go into sort of smaller group Bible studies and teach the word to the people. In chapter 9, he leads this national prayer of confession when the people look back at their history and all of what God has done and fall in repentance because of their sin. In chapter 10, he, he reinstitutes the covenant of God and the, the temple is relaunched. And, and even at the very end of the book, 13 years later, he's still encouraging the people to maintain their faithfulness to the word of God. He's building people after building the walls. That's the, the goal. The goal was to build the community of God under the word of God, the rule of God, in the place of God, centered on the worship of the 
living God. Now, please don't understand me. Both types of works are important. It's important to build structures, but those are a means to an end, to the important work, complementary work, of building people. And I think it's fair to say that often in church life, it's easier to drift into the work of building walls, to building structures, than building people. We often fall into the habit of thinking our Christian service is in terms of jobs, in terms of being on rotas, in terms of the events I go to, the hours I put in. And it's harder to quantify the prayerful, loving work of support, the times of speaking the word of God into another person in the pew, or the times over a coffee or via email. But like Nehemiah, both of these things are important. We can't focus purely on programs and on their continued maintenance, but rather on the development and growth of each other as the body of Christ, as the living bricks. You know, I perhaps find it easier to stand at the coffee bar and give you a cup of tea or coffee after the service rather than talk about what has the Word of God spoken this evening meant to my life? What are the points of prayer or points of encouragement that the Lord has brought to me this week? It's sometimes easier to do the structural bits, to build the walls, rather than build into each other. Now, the coffee is essential, and the biscuits and buns are great, but there is a greater work than just the infrastructure, than the fundraising, than the committees, than the events. We're called to work with and for and build into each other. Over time and time again in the New Testament, over 50 times we get that little phrase, one another, encourage one another in the word of the Lord, share one another's burdens, stimulate one another to love and good works. Jesus Christ promised I will build my church. And Peter, of course, who heard that, then said in his letter, you are the living stones that God is building into a living house. That's the job that we have, to build into each other, to build a living house, a temple for God, to to build into each other that we will continue to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why we're refurbishing this rain shelter. That's why we put on a cafe, so that there would be walls, literally walls, that there would be structures, but that within those walls there would be building of living stones, building into each other. Ultimately, the hard work of Nehemiah in both building walls and building the people bringing it all back together and the temple being reinstituted would quite literally pave the way in just a matter of centuries for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, the fulfillment of the temple and all of that system to come and to walk in this city. What an awesome privilege it is for us to continue in that building heritage. Sometimes it's difficult. 
Sometimes it requires chopping corners off old blocks. Sometimes it requires more investment in people than in infrastructure. But what a privilege to follow in the footsteps of Nehemiah. So let's not be discouraged. Let's never, never give in. Let's not be distracted. Let's not be deceived by the deceptive traps of the enemy. And let's focus on building each other up to be renewed in his word and to be worshipers of the living God. Amen.